Please pray with me. Lord, as we've once again heard these words of your passion, as we consider the crowd who one day would exalt you as their king and within a week decry you as a flaw, we pray, Lord, that you will, Holy Spirit, come upon us, your people, that you, Lord, will expose the places in our hearts where unmet expectations where deep disappointments, where hurts that we have carried may be brought to light and thereby be healed. Lord and Holy Spirit, come to us by your word this morning. Heal your people, we pray. Amen. Last week in our household, we had a boys' night and sat down to the long undertaking of viewing the epic film Gettysburg. I, if you've not seen it, I do highly recommend it. I cannot promise it to be a fast-paced, action-packed, you know, uh, what, what are they, uh, the marketing people call that, you know, a uh, edge-of-your-seat, joyride kind of movie. It's not that. But it's excellently researched, and it's well worth your time, all four hours of it but it uh, excellently depicts some of the key personalities from the Civil War, from one of my heroes, uh, Joshua Chamberlain, to Robert E. Lee, John Buford, and James Longstreet. The action, of course, centers around the three-day campaign, the engagement between the uh, advancing Confederate Army and the Union that comes out to meet them on the fields of Gettysburg. As I was watching it, I was struck by the leadership conversations and the leadership decisions, particularly on the part of the Confederate forces. General Lee, you see, wants to send the bulk of his forces on the third day, three divisions of soldiers, about 15, uh, can't actually now remember, it was 1,500 or 15,000, but a large amount of his force, but three divisions right through the center of the Union line, where it's weakest, but where it's on the high ground of Cemetery Ridge. And he's motivated first and foremost, and is very vocal about this, by his desire to bring a swift conclusion to this conflict, to this battle, and as he believes it, even a very swift conclusion to the war because he believes if he can conclusively win Gettysburg, they can march right to Washington and end the war. He believes that this strong drive up the middle will do just that. But at the same time, his chief advisor, General James Longstreet, sees the weaknesses in the plan and stridently protests. In an almost prophetic tone, he plays out exactly what he believes will happen as his forces try to advance nearly one mile uphill to the Union position. Nevertheless, as a soldier and a gentleman, Longstreet and all of his other officers, several others who believe that what he says is exactly how it will unfold, they follow Lee's order. And the next day, the battle commences, commences and follows almost exactly 
the course that Longstreet had foretold. It's as if he had read the script ahead of time and needed only to watch it play out before his eyes. As we come into this Holy Week, as we look at some of the scriptures appointed for Palm Sunday, we say, see the same thing. I was struck this year by the way the portion of Psalm 118, which I just read to us, has that very same effect. It's as if the psalmist saw in advance precisely what would happen as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Or more precisely, as if Jesus, well familiar with the words of the psalmist, took them as his guide, his, his playbook, his plan, to plan out his actions on that day. Interestingly enough, we also see the ways in which the crowd which greets Jesus on that first Palm Sunday seem to have locked in on certain elements of that psalm and its details as well. Yet what we'll ultimately see is that even if the crowd and Jesus are looking at the same script, their interpretation is incredibly different. And their expectations of the outcomes are as different as Generals Lee and Longstreet as they predicted the outcome at Gettysburg. So if you have a Bible, take it up and turn to Psalm 118, starting in verse 19. Understand, first and foremost, though, in Judaism, already by the first century, Psalm 118 was a part of a, a, the series of psalms starting in 112 and running through 118, a series of psalms called the Hallel, which means the praise, Hallel being the root word for our word, Hallelujah. The Hallel consists, as I say, of Psalms 112 to 118, and it's chanted in worship at all of the major feasts of Judaism, including the Passover. This makes obvious sense given some of the themes we hear mentioned, even in the brief section that we read this morning. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords, even up to the horns of the altar. Let me enter through the gates of righteousness and give thanks to the Lord. But the strange thing here on this Palm Sunday is that the crowd is chanting a portion of this psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, on the Sunday prior to Passover. Now, by citing this single verse from the psalm, Matthew is employing a common literary device among biblical writers. Citing a single verse is a sort of shorthand to indicate the use of the larger whole, meaning that very likely this crowd was actually chanting the entirety of Psalm 118 as they had done on so many festal occasions previous quite possibly chanting the entire Hallel. That, frankly, is quite strange. Here's why. Because they're five days early. The chanting of the Hallel is not normally done until the first day, and in the case of Passover, the first and second day of the feast. That means they shouldn't be using this chant liturgically until Thursday at the earliest. Yet here they are. Sunday before, chanting this traditional hymn of praise to God. What's going on? 
Well, there's another time in Israel's history when this chant was used as a song of praise outside of marking the three major feasts. Some of you may be aware that in 160 BC, the Jews won their full independence for the first time since the days of the Babylonian exile. Under Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, the Jews overthrew their Greek occupiers and won a brief period of independence before the time of the Roman conquest when they would sadly lose it again. This is the festival that's marked every year near the time of our own Christmas celebrations, the festival of Hanukkah, not a biblical feast, but a celebration of Jewish nationalism and pride nevertheless. So what this crowd is communicating quite clearly is their expectation around Jesus as the Messiah. The reason this crowd came out to cheer his entrance into the holy city is precisely because of their expectation that he has come among them as their deliverer king, another Judas Maccabeus. It's as if they too are looking at Psalm 118's predictions and seeing the glorious victory of God over the Romans unfolding before their eyes. Like Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg, they see a speedy and sure end to their conflict, their occupation, their oppression as a subjugated people. Clearly, as the people sing out this hymn, they're focused upon verses 24 and 25. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. They look upon Jesus' entrance into the holy city. And they see it as the day that the Lord has made for their salvation. This is the day the Lord will bring success to our cause against the occupying enemy of God's people. Likewise, the people seem to be focused upon the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. The light shining on us again. As the Lord's anointed king, the blessed one, comes in God's name to bring God's victory. That's what the people see. That's how they're reading this Psalm 118 playbook. That's not how Jesus reads it. As he approaches the city, it's as if, like General James Longstreet, he sees clearly and accurately what is actually about to come. Not the swift overthrow of Roman occupation, but a very different outcome indeed. Jesus' reading of Psalm 118 begins, I think, with these words in verse 19 that we started with, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. As Jesus re-enters the city, he does so on this day through the eastern gate, coming back from the Mount of Olives in Bethany where he had been staying. He crosses the Kidron Valley. And this scene takes place at what is known as the Eastern or Golden Gate on the east of the walled city. The Golden Gate, also known as the Gate of Mercy. 
Friends, Jesus never did anything by happenstance. When he enters to the shouts of, open to me the gates of righteousness, he deliberately does so riding through the gate of mercy. Mercy and righteousness go hand in hand in the kingdom of the Christ. Because as the gospel of Christ demonstrates and proclaims to us, you can't enter God's holy presence relying upon your own righteousness, but rather clinging only to God's mercy. It's only by the mercy of Christ that any of us can be accounted righteous and therefore worthy to enter through the gates of righteousness to give our thanks to the Lord. Similarly, as the action progresses, what the crowd fails to see in this playing out of Psalm 118 is the plan of God, which says, you can't have the Lord's salvation, the success, without embracing the rejected stone. See, before the people can pray, Alleluia, Lord, bring us success, they're led to pray, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And we know, of course, Jesus himself applies that text to himself. Because the religious leaders, the, the builders, have already rejected him even though he himself is the foundation stone, the chief stone upon which God is building his kingdom. See, the people look on the scene, seeing their exalted king. Jesus sees this as the prelude to his rejection by the architects of first century Judaism. The need to enter not into joy before first suffering pain, coming not into his glory before his humiliation, his coronation not upon a throne, but a cross, not with gold, but with thorns. The people are focused on the glorious words, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is focused upon how he will seal the new covenant of God's steadfast love in his own blood. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That's not talking about a lamb. It's talking about the lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Two very different expectations and interpretations of the same events, same words. What Jesus is declaring in the midst of this, his so-called triumphal entry, is that he is, in fact, Israel's king returned and having secured their victory and their peace. But the people fail to recognize or appreciate what could only be understood exactly one week later after the resurrection is that this victory, this peace, they don't look like what this crowd is expecting. My friends, my brothers and sisters, we are living in a time when things are not going exactly in the way any of us expected them, are they? Six months ago, none of us could have predicted that we would be living in the midst of a governmental stay-at-home order. Can that even happen in the United States? It's out of can, and it does. 
Six months ago, I did not expect that I would be celebrating my last Holy Week with the Christ Our Hope community this year. And yet, here we are. Here we are, or rather, here I am, and you all are not. Certainly, none of us expected that we would celebrate Holy Week 2020 by watching church on TV. These are certainly strange times that we are living in. Not sure what I expected from Lent and Holy Week 2020, but it certainly wasn't this. Expectations are tricky things, aren't they? Because on one level, expectation is related to hope. I expect that we are going to get out of this strange, scary, stressful season. I expect life to resume again. Probably not as soon as I would like it to, probably not even in the same ways as we've always known, but I do expect that it will get back to somewhat normal. Those are hopeful expectations because hope is related to expectation. But so is disappointment. For the crowds that greeted Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, the thwarting of their expectations leads to their disappointment, which in turn leads to their turning upon the man they once heralded as, as God's anointed king. See, they had a wrong understanding of the playbook. And rather than taking the opportunity to pause and examine their wrong expectations, learn from them, and embrace God's interpretation of the playbook, they keep their course and end up having a hand in crucifying the king of the Jews. Whenever we're faced with a disappointment or a thwarted expectation, we have an opportunity. We're faced with a choice. First, we're faced with the opportunity to allow that disappointment to fester and breed bitterness, or to embrace the opportunity to learn and move deeper into the life of God, which is based not in our reading of the game plan, but his. And second, with that, facing our disappointments can also be an instrument for real, deeper healing. Because it can lead us to more fully grieve our losses. Whenever we find ourselves feeling the feels, as I like to say, only the most compartmentalized among us can keep from feeling the bubbling up of feelings from other hurts and losses in our past. I register this or that hurt or rejection and all the residual echoes of past hurt and past rejection all the way back to childhood can come flooding forward it's like when we face a disappointment, we get a Dickensian visit from the ghost of disappointment's past. That's not entirely a bad thing. I'm not saying it's fun. I certainly don't enjoy it. But it's not at all bad. Because feeling those feels creates for us the opportunity to face them, to grieve our losses more fully, and ultimately, through that grieving process then, to heal. When these things come to the fore, we have the opportunity, rather than trying to stuff them back down, 
so that the next time around they can come back with a vengeance. We can try to draw them out into the light of day and sit with them in the presence of the Lord. We have the opportunity to be conscious of these, our losses, and pour out our grief over them to the Lord. We have the opportunity to ask him who sees and hears us in our griefs and disappointments to release us from the compulsions that unacknowledged, ungrieved losses will drive in us. I believe, brothers and sisters, I believe that what the Lord is inviting us into this year is the opportunity to take a close, careful look at our expectations and to take the opportunity to grieve our losses, our disappointments, whatever memories, feelings, losses, disappointments, this season of thwarted expectations might be triggering in you, whatever buttons it might be pushing, stop running from them. Stop hiding from them. Pull them all the way out and deal with them openly in the presence of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, that may require setting up a phone call or a Zoom meeting with a trusted counselor or spiritual director. I know of several professional counselors who have transitioned their practices to an online format. It may involve setting up a Zoom meeting with me, probably after Holy Week at this point, but a Zoom meeting with me, I'd be glad to do it. Or it may just mean carving out some deliberate, deliberate, quiet time to sit, perhaps with a journal and get it all out and acknowledged before deliberately asking the Spirit to come and help you do something with it all. As we talked and prayed for this Holy Week, Sarah and I came to the conviction that what the Lord is inviting Christ our hope to embrace this year is this opportunity to more fully grieve our losses, along with the opportunity to give and receive real forgiveness at the cross, to prepare our hearts to move forward in resurrection hope. That's what the shape of this Holy Week 2020 journey is going to look like for us, I believe. Giving and receiving forgiveness, grieving our losses, so that we can move forward in resurrection hope. That's been and will remain my prayer for you, my companions on this journey. So allow me to pray with you and for you right now. Lord, as always, your gospel confronts in us things that we don't like confronted. So, Lord, just as you, frankly, deliberately thwarted the expectations of the crowds in order to confront their wrong understanding of your kingship, Lord and Holy Spirit, I invite you, I want to encourage my brothers and sisters to invite you to come among us this week. to thwart our misinformed 
understandings and expectations. Or as we are already grappling with the, the disappointments that this strange season has created in us and for us, Lord, use those. Not, not like a hammer smashing stone, but like oil worked into leather to soften our hearts to you, to the plan that you have for us. Like oil to be a healing balm to those places where our hearts are hurting because of the disappointments, the hurts, the unmet expectations that we carry. Lord and Holy Spirit, only you can do that work. So it is to you that I commend us for that work to be done in this most holy place. It's in your name, our Lord, our God, that we pray it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.